Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 140, where we interview Belinda Rosenblum from Own Your Money and hear her story of financial independence, financial mistakes, and how she's turned all of that into a six plus figure career. So a lot of really learning how to own your money and to become unapologetic around money in your business is taking the emotion out of it. So it's coming to terms with the emotion, right? Recognizing that mindset piece for yourself, but then recognizing that that doesn't have to rule a show. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my business savvy co-host, Scott Trench. Mindy, I just love how these adjectives are incorporated into every one of our introductions here. <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else and show you that by following the proven steps, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, or become a self-made millionaire in your 30s and start your own business, we'll help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams. Scott, today's guest is Belinda Rosenblum. She is a self-starter, a CPA, a coach with a very impressive client list. You will recognize all of the names on the list. She's worked for the SEC and Arthur Anderson before striking out on her own, taking the money lessons she learned from a corporate career and applying them first to personal finance education and then pivoting again to help small businesses figure out how to consistently earn money. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. 
Belinda Rosenblum from Own Your Money. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. You are a CPA, a certified coach. Uh, some of your clients include Harvard Business School, Harvard University, Bentley University. Um, I'm sorry you're not more qualified to talk about money over here. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. It's only been, oh, I don't know, 25 years, but I'll see what I can do to uh, improve that for you, Mindy and Scott. 25 years. Well, tell us where your journey with money begins. Sure, absolutely. So um, I think from an early age, we could kind of tell that I was going to be good at money. Like I was the type that would like enjoy counting money. (laughs) You know, I would like dump out my piggy bank and like not to spend it, but to count it, you know, or, you know, my sister wanted to use my bicycle. I was like, that'll be a quarter, please. You know, I I think there were just funny (laughs) things where I... I like had an affinity for money early on, you know, accounting, applied statistics. These were some of my favorite courses in high school. I even had a side job working for my neighbor's business when a lot of people were cutting lawns or only babysitting. Like I was sending out monthly invoices and bookkeeping for an alarm company. And I started to even get turned on then. I was like, this recurring revenue thing is really good. When I grow up, I want to be sending out invoices and collecting money every month too, you know? And in college, I had, um, I was, you know, a, a strong, you know, accounting student, all of that. And I was on the swim team and I wanted a side job. So I worked for a catering company and, you know, a lot of people are kind of the catering assistant and, you know, like, would you like pigs in a blanket and that kind of thing. But to me, that was kind of boring. So then by like the second event that I was in, I started to see the bigger picture and became more of like the traffic cop. So I'm like, you know, like visually like landing planes or serving drinks over here. And it just made it a lot more fun. So, you know, from an early age, I was like, okay, I think that there's something to this. Like I'm enjoying earning money. But when I had just graduated college and I was 21, I was just a few months out. I had just passed the CPA exam actually, or just taken the exam. I hadn't found out I passed yet. And um, my father then had a stroke and I just graduated. So I was like, know, hot to trot. And it was like, boom, you know, things just like my world stopped at that point. My parents have been divorced in early age. My sister just started college. So I was the one that really stepped up and needed to help take care of them. Not to start this off on a sad note, but that was my reality, right? And so I became family CFO (laughs) way younger than I would have wanted, you know, at 21. And the thing was that because I had this, you know, accounting degree, I think that it just kind of seemed like it made sense, right? Like, oh, she'll just take over for it. But I was vastly underprepared. You know, it prepares you, college prepares you for like corporate accounting. It doesn't necessarily prepare you for like the mountains of bills that you're going to have to deal with when your dad's in the hospital, along with all the emotional, everything that goes with that. And so over the next few years, I kind of band-aided things together. And I had been on the road you know, four or five days a week. And I put that on hold for a little while while I was caring for him. And then I was like, okay, let me pick back up my career. Like it feels like it's a safe time to do that. I didn't put together that now I have all of this extra financial baggage that I had to take care of. And it was like, whoa, you know, what's going to give? Well, what gave was me opening up the mail. So again, this is not the um, financial strategy that I recommend for everybody, (laughs) but I would be on the Sounds like a millennial problem. Yeah. I have the same issue. Yeah. (laughs) I was in my 20s. I guess that that fits, right? And I would be on the road like Monday to Friday, get home and I would have this huge stack of mail waiting for me. Well, I got to the point where I would find any spare basket, 
table drawer that I could put it on because I was like, oh my God, I just can't deal. Like I have to go see my dad. He was asking for me all week and I, I have like wanted to see my friends and exercise maybe and do all those things. And so then you can kind of start to see the pattern that was forming, right? It was this disastrous like rinse and repeat. I would go back on the road Monday, I'd come back Friday and I would just have more mail. Well, pretty soon. So now I'm like 28. And my sister very innocuously asked me one day, like, how's everything going? I can tell you're really working hard in your business. And like, are you handling everything at home? I know that it's a lot. And she's like a freshman. No, by then I think she was in med school. But she was like, you know, I know I can't really help, but like, how are you handling everything? And it was in that moment that I kind of had this, this like, okay, I can't stop lying to myself. You know, this moment of like, what am I going to do? And I was like, you know what, uh, Melissa, let me... Let me get back from this trip. Let me get back to you on the answer to that in terms of how things are really going. And my dad was affected by the stroke. He wasn't going to be any use in handling all of his finances. So I come home from my trip on Friday night and I do one of the scariest things. And if anybody listening here has piles of bills and mail, you can kind of guess where this is going. I pulled, he's <laughs> like on the edge of her seat here. I like pulled all of the bills and mail from all of the baskets, all of the drawers, all the counters, all the tables, whatever. And I put them all on my dining room table. Now, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm being stared down by not one, not two, but three huge stacks of bills and mail that were literally as tall as I was, <laughs> like sitting at the table. So what happened next? It wasn't that I was like, oh yeah, let me go tackle that. I started to have a panic attack because that's what you do when you're stared down by three stacks of bills and mail. You're like, holy crap, like how did I get myself into this? And so then I started to like stand up and pace around and my sister was right. Like it was a lot. I had eight bank accounts and four credit cards and two properties. I mean, you could have added a partridge in a pear tree, <laughs> but it was like, it was a lot. And so then the self-talk starts. You know how like sometimes it's like our, our own mind is our worst enemy. So then the self-talk starts and I'm like, oh my gosh, like how could I have gotten myself into this? You know, I was a star player at work, but what happens if they find out about, you know, keep in mind, I'm an accounting, right? I'm, I'm like at a big CPA firm. And I was like, what are they going to do if they find out about this? And then my heart's starting to beat really fast. And I was like, could my dad get kicked out of the nursing home if one of these bills is his bill for the nursing home? Or could he show up at a doctor and the doctor not help him because I haven't paid the bill? Like all of this like spiral started to go. And then at some point I was like, okay, I just have to stop. And I just sat down and I took a deep breath. <laughs> And I affectionately call this my come to Jesus moment, which is kind of funny because I'm Jewish. But it was like <laughs> this moment where I was like, okay, I have a choice here. You know, like either I can be the, the person that succeeds with numbers like I have been in other parts of my life, right? And I can be the person that can learn what I needed to learn or I can just keep letting these bills pile up and then Lord knows what's going to happen. And so... That was this moment that now my company is called Own Your Money. And I think that that was really the first moment where I was like, I can either own my money or my money is going to own me because that's really what it felt like. And so then I asked for help. I literally phoned a friend <laughs> and I, I called her up and I remember it was like, she was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, it's been a rough night. And I just asked her to come over and help me because I'd gotten to the point where it was so much that I couldn't even sit down and tackle it. You know, sometimes when you just have a lot, people are like, oh, divide it up and just start opening. It was overwhelming to me. 
And it was like, it had flipped this switch that early on, I was like, oh, I'm great at earning money. I love money to be like, oh my God, I can't even deal. Like I couldn't write a check. I couldn't do all that stuff. And so then she was willing to come over that weekend and she would open the mail and she would show it to me. And for any people here, I don't know if you guys have ever been through this, that have had let mail pile up for yourself, you have to sort it so that you sort it by vendor because otherwise you don't know if you paid that bill before. So I would have like three or four bills from each person. (laughs) Yeah, like here, no, here's exactly. here's the sixth reminder that your payments do it. Exactly. Like, oh, this one's red. I think this is the one that I have to handle first. Right. So that's kind of what we do. We like make piles, and then we look at it. We decide we had to pay, and and then she came over like both days that weekend. So at some point, I was like, I can't do anymore. And then she came over the next weekend, and then we went from you know two days to just one day. And it actually took me six months to sort through all of that and to. Because mail keeps coming, just for the record. I know there's all this craziness with the USPS, but like it does, it just keeps coming. Even when you decide I'm going to get through all of this backlog. So I, and I think the other thing is that I decided that I didn't just want to band aid it again, because that's what I had been doing ever since my dad had the stroke. It was just like, oh, like kind of catch as catch can. And so I wanted to create a different money management system. And I actually wanted to change my own mind about how I was going to look at the responsibility that I now had for my family. And so it took six months, but I remember I was sitting at dinner with my dad and my sister one day and I could look them in the eye again because I hadn't realized the emotional impact that that shame was really having on me from not looking at it and from being in all of that avoidance. And so in six months, I had worked out my, my money management. I worked out my mindset and I just had so much more relief and hope that like I could do this. You know, the good news is that although I was quite had become quite the avoider, I was also quite the saver. So, you know, sometimes we'll talk about like, were you maxing out your 401k? Yeah, I was doing all those things because I was like, well, at least I'll have the money when I emotionally can pay it. It'll be there, right? And and part of it was that in, in some ways we had it, but for anyone who has parents who have gotten ill, you have a lot of more rules, like social security needs a separate bank account. And it was like all of these things needed to be handled in a certain way. And it just had gotten too overwhelming. So good news though, that was 28. Then five years later, by 33, I had actually become a self-made millionaire. And I honestly think that I wouldn't have been there. Yay! If I hadn't have had that moment where I was like, I can do this and no one is going to come in and save me. You know, I was single at the time and I think I was hoping that I was going to marry the Prince Charming and he was just going to handle the money. But at that point, I was like, I had just broken up with my 10-year boyfriend. I was like, nope, he's not saving me. <laughs> it's on me. <laughs> so, um, and no offense to men, you know, who can handle the money. That's awesome. But if you stop and look at it, like women are actually really good at this, but it's just that we don't take it on as much ourselves or we think, oh, they'll handle it. So things really started to change at 28 and then at 33. And then fortunately that happened in time because then by 35, I had an early midlife crisis. So, you know, it's like sometimes it happens at 45 or 50. I'm kind of an overachiever (laughs) as well as a financial (laughs) geek about all this stuff. So I was 35 and I'm like, the heck am I going to do with my life? You know, and I had gotten in a job that I felt like I was checking my personality at the door. I know, you know, for many of your fire people who are like, I don't want to work in corporate in the same way that I did before. You know, that's kind of how I was feeling. It was like I didn't have to work theoretically um, because we, I purchased a property um, around that year of 28, maybe like uh, six to 12 months before that epiphany moment. 
And I was getting rental income from that. So if I wanted to really scrape back, I didn't have to work, but I knew that I wanted to work and I had an impact to make in the world. And so at 35, it all started to change. Well, well can, I, can, we, can we just quickly at least get the general gist of how you personally made the, got to become the self-made millionaire? You know, like what was your relationship with money personally? It sounds like you were maxing the 401k, those types of things. But could you give us a quick overview of that? Sure. So, um, so I was maxing the 401k. I lived at home for the first years. So actually let's back up. So when I was in high school, I was working. Like I had that alarm company job. I was a lifeguard, a pool director. I was a good saver back then. So that all started to help. And I would invest that not significantly, but kind of index funds and just let that grow. So that started early. And then when I was in college, I was also working. So, and I had it, um, I know sometimes this is an element of the conversation, but I was able to not have student loans from college, which I know is also a big deal kind of in this equation. So I had, how do I tell this fast? But my father was a college professor. So I could either go to his college or like a sister college where he was. So I made the decision to go to a sister college. You know, and, and it was Boston College. It was a great school. But part of that decision was how do I not burden myself with Hundred to two hundred thousand dollars of loans from school, and so I was able to save without the corresponding debt that so many people end up having, right? And that's why you really want to be proactive early on to make that decision and to really see: Can I? That was part of my working in college was how do I go through this without coming out of it with debt, with like a lot of credit card debt or other things like that? Like, how do I at least work enough so that I can pay for the things I want to do while I'm at college? So then I got an internship between junior and senior year. And then I went to work shortly thereafter in September, like right out of college. And so my dad, you know, he really wanted us to like become independent. And so pre-stroke, he was like, you're going to live here and you're going to pay rent (laughs) so that I could get used to paying rent. So then when I left there and then once he ended up having the stroke, then I was like, okay, well, I'm managing the household and lots of other things. You're my second job we're going to count that as the rent. So I was just able to save a lot early on, right? That was part of it. And then I bought property in Boston. I bought a two-family home. So you know, I had mentioned that I saved, so I had saved enough for a solid down payment. And then I bought a two-family so that... You say two-family, is that duplex? You mean like a... a Yeah, it's like there's... It's like a, a... It was three floors. My unit was the first two floors. Then I rented out the third floor. Got it. House hacked. Love it. Yeah, totally. So like, right, way back. So this was in 2000. That's what I was doing. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, this is actually a three bedroom. I'm single. Let me rent out a bedroom. So then I had a friend rent out a bedroom. So, you know, a lot of these things were like, I didn't have to do it, but I was traveling a lot anyway. And I was like, let's maximize the resources that I have. And I think sometimes we don't stop to look around and say, what resources do I have that I could be maximizing in some way? And so for me, it was a bedroom in the apartment. You know, and I not only was I renting out upstairs, but I also rented out one of the rooms in our apartment or my apartment. So then all of those things I just kept tucking away. You know what I mean? I just kept saving. And then the value of the real estate started to go up during that five years as well. So those were the key components was my investments. And I believed in investing, not just in the 401k, like I was maxing that out, but also creating an investment account with what I was saving that wasn't necessarily retirement money. At the highest level, what would you kind of say was your general savings rate during that period? 
very significant. So, you know, for the, for the first few years, um, when I was taking care of my dad, that was my, my personal life. So I didn't spend a lot, you know, and if I did, I, I love adventure and I love travel. So every year I would take a big trip, but I would like do hostels and I would backpack around places like China and Africa and Russia and crazy things like that, you know, and had a great time. So I didn't feel like I was withholding from myself. Cause I think that that's also really important that when you're a saver, you want to make sure that you're not in this scarcity, like, Oh, I can't spend. It was just that I was choosing to spend on the things that I really valued and particularly the experiences that I really wanted. And so I don't know, it'd probably be like, you know, for the first couple of years, maybe like 70%. I mean, it was a lot. I wasn't paying rent. I was living at home. I paid off a car, you know? And then when I, I moved into the city, cause I wanted that experience in New York, but I got a rent controlled apartment. Right. And so a lot of it is, is not just what can you do, but it's what do you want to do? Right. And how does it really fuel the future? So it was significant, but then I, I tailored it back down probably to more like 20, 30% maybe. Okay. Awesome. So, all right. So you get to this point and you know, that, that makes perfect sense. You just, you know, it reminds me a lot of really what Craig Kurlop is doing. If you've, if you've come across him or, or heard of his story, he's written the book on house hacking uh, for, for bigger pockets here. And um, anyway, so he has a very similar, I think, approach and mindset to money that you, you demonstrated during that period. So you've moved to 33, 35, you're, you're a financially independent millionaire, self-made millionaire. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't. I didn't think of it as this big deal because it's like it kind of comes and goes. No one's there with like the fanfare. Like, oh look, <laughs> your net worth now crossed a million dollars. Like, yep. no, that doesn't really happen in real life. Just so everybody knows, like, you, mm-hmm. you're just sitting there looking at your spreadsheet, and you're like, oh look what I did. You know, and I think that that's part of it. And and I would save from my job, right? But then it was also that I would have the net positive cash flow from the house, and I would also save that. So I think that was also part of my quote savings rate at the time. Um, but yes. Okay. So we're here at 3335. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did you have a question or do you want me to kind of pick yes, up the what, story from here? Yeah. Pick up the story. What changes? Well, you know, it sounds like this is a, that there's a milestone or next component to your career that, that starts at this point. Yeah. So sort of part two, right? So part mm-hmm. one was all about, it was in a corporate job. And it's so interesting because it's like, we think that we're going to have such financial stability, right? When we're in corporate, but I left, I was in two jobs while I was in corporate. One was with Arthur Anderson, which at the time was like the premier accounting firm until Enron happened. And then we all got laid off like universally, right? So it wasn't a personal thing, but was able to get a new um, role then as a corporate controller. Actually, it was just called controller at the time. And then we kind of I didn't like between us, I didn't like controller on a business card, which is pretty terrible if you're ever dating, by the way, to hand a man a card that says controller. I don't recommend it. <laughs> so I elevated myself to corporate controller. And so then I uh, did that. Comp, comp troller, right? Isn't it? <laughs> but then no one understands what that is. I didn't even understand what that was. So um, so I called myself a corporate controller instead of somehow somehow took off the edge. But you know, and, and again, I, you know, all along the way it was about it was about owning my own value, right? So even when I left Arthur Anderson and I went to go work for, um, it was uh, L3 Communications at the time, we made x-ray screening machines post 9-11. So it was a very big time to have to be starting there. And I negotiated myself like from 
you know, 90 grand to 130 grand or something plus signing bonuses. Cause I was like, Hey, just because like, I'm not a victim to the situation, I can make the most of it. So I had three, four different offers. I sort of pinged them against each other. And I was like, Oh, this one has a signing bonus. And this one has stock options. And I just rolled them all up into the one that I wanted to go to. And I think that that's something for people to realize, especially early on, is that your income compounds on each other, right? So it's like, if I hadn't negotiated that at the time, it's a lot harder to negotiate anything once you're in a job than when you're starting a job, right? So I negotiated that. I worked there for three and a half years. And then post 9-11, we ramped up significantly. But then a few years later, once we had staffed up all of the airports all around the world, then we started to restructure down. I took a nice package at that in 2006 it was. And then I backed pack around India because at that point I had still had that love of adventure. Then I went to India and I basically lived Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> you guys remember that? Like before it was a book and a movie. And so <laughs> I went backpacked around India. I went to Israel for a couple of weeks. I volunteered in Costa Rica for this underprivileged teen program there. By the way, I didn't speak any Spanish. So I crash course myself in Spanish for three weeks. And then um, I was sitting there in the in the outdoor classroom with the kids. And that was that early midlife crisis where I was like, what do I want to do with my life? Like I had already started looking for a job anyway. I could kind of see the writing on the wall and it just got really miserable. So... I have something to jump in here with. So what year-ish did you, do you think you were that, um, achieved that millionaire status that were, you know, when I was 33, so like 2004-ish. Okay. And so, and so the next couple of years, it sounds like your career is going even better and you're just kind of like really padding that net worth pretty thoroughly. And, and that's the point at which you have this, this moment, it sounds like, where you begin to think about the next, the next, what you want to do next. And before we hear about that, how much do you think that your financial position, that millionaire status plus plenty, I guess, uh, influence your ability to kind of begin thinking like that or have that that revelation. So that, yeah, that's the that's yeah. a really good question. I think that it it did actually free me up. So I took off about a year and a half mm-hmm. at that time frame. And at first, the overachiever in me thought, "Oh, I should just go right back and get a job because that's what we do." And then I took the step back and I was like, "Well, why have I been saving all this money if not to give myself choices?" And options, and you know, and and decide what is it that I wanted to do. So it's, it's a great question to really have that ability to take a step back and say, well, do I want to volunteer? You know, do I like what? Do I want to be the next step? It didn't feel like I had to go in a certain direction that was the prescribed way to go for a CPA with a six-figure job and that kind of a thing, right? So I think it did give me a lot more options and a lot more spaciousness. Right, because I literally three weeks to the day from getting laid off, I was on the plane to India, which is not the easiest thing to arrange that because you have to get visas and like shots and all this other stuff. But I had this urgency that I put on myself, right? I'm like, oh, I gotta, I wanna go and then I'm gonna take this trip and then I'm gonna come back and then I'm gonna get a job. So it wasn't more than like three months. And then when I was away, and I don't know if, if you've ever been to India or if anyone listening has ever been to India, it's world, it's life changing. And you just really see how people live and what you really need and what you don't need. Like I came home, I gave away a third of my stuff. I remember my accountants, all of my like donation receipts. And they're like, what have you been doing in this year? <laughs> have you like turned into a hippie or something? And I'm like, no, I just, I, I, I like would see how much <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> like my very, you know, my male older, it was like a dad figure to me. And he's like, what's going on? You know? And <laughs> I was like, I know it's crazy, but like, I don't, I don't, I don't need all of this, you know? And, and I wasn't a huge spender. So my dad was much more of a hoarder, like a retail therapy kind of guy. And after he had had the stroke and I, I lived through getting rid of all of that, you know? And so for some of us who like accumulate stuff, he was the type that like, if he had a bad day, he'd stop off on his way home and buy a tie. And we had hundreds of ties we had to get rid of, like 436 ties. Like I'm not joking here. Right. And so when, when you have somebody in your family, when you have to live through the emotion of getting rid of so much stuff, it takes away a lot of the fun of buying stuff because <laughs> mm. you're like, it's just going to accumulate and I'm just going to have to deal with it. And so then when I came back from India and I was like, look, seeing how simply some people lived, I actually wrote a book shortly thereafter called Self-Worth to Net Worth. And I told a bunch of stories in there of like one tour guide, he like, you know, invited us back to his quote house, which was the size of a bathroom in the United States. Like he had like bunk beds basically where you can imagine like a bathtub. Like he lived with somebody else in this tiny, tiny space, but he was one of the most joyful people I've ever met in my whole life. You know, and so I just came home and I gave away a lot of stuff and I was like, you know what? What do I want this next phase of my life to be? And how can I use what I've worked so hard to accumulate to help support me during this time? Well, you know? I have, so I have a quick follow-up question on all that. So sure. this... You know, that money situation with the surplus that you created for yourself and the optionality to, to allow you to think like this, how how could someone who's listening and who says, you know, I, I kind of am doing some of those same things and I think I'm going to be in a similarly strong position relatively early in life. How do I accelerate that moment by a few years or a few, you know, what what are some, do you have any, any ways to answer that question? Sure. So, you know, you kind of reach this place of like financial freedom, right? When your passive income or the money coming in, right, exceeds the money that you need to spend. Well, if you want to accelerate it, you reduce the amount of spending, mm-hmm. right? Or you offset the expenses. So like, that's when I was like, okay, we're going to have a roommate. Like I even considered getting a second roommate, you know, or like starting to get creative in that time frame because I was like, well, if I just spend less, my money will go further, Right. And I was still on unemployment. And I mean, I shut it off when I was going on all these trips, but essentially I had unemployment running for a little while. I got in a severance package. And I think that it's really looking at how do I tame in my spending in a way that feels good and appropriate for myself, right? That it doesn't, like I wasn't eating ramen noodles every night. But at the same time, like when, um, when Christmas came, when the holidays came that year, I didn't go out and spend like maybe I normally would have spent, right? I just got creative instead. So, and maybe some people call this kind of hokey. I, it was a great money, saving a thousand bucks. Hippie, you know? hippie is the hippie, word. right? There you go. There's my new word. Um, but, um, but that I took the pictures from all of these travels that I had just gone on. I took some of the best pictures. I like a little... Back in the day when we used cameras, um, like, uh, you know, in a fa- <laughs> it's like so funny to be having this conversation. It wasn't that long ago, guys. Um, but um, like, really, what was it? Like 14 years ago? But we actually used real cameras, not just our phone. So I took some really good pictures. And so I, I made note cards 
right? And so I had I designed 10 different note cards and I would do packages of note cards for people. And then that way I felt like they got to experience some of what I got to see when I was traveling and I wasn't spending hundreds or a thousand dollars on gifts. I was getting creative instead and I was doing more thoughtful experiences together. And so... No, the key thing is that you let go of the, I need to keep up with the Joneses, I need to keep up with somebody else and really look at your own things that really matter to you and really look at how can I make my money go further and how can I maybe leverage my resources in a way that I haven't done before. Love it. Thank you. And the shared economy really plays into that. You know, I think when people will do Uber to better use their car, for instance, right? Or rent out a room with an Airbnb or something like that. So, Yeah. All right. So next question, what, what did you decide to do after you had your, you know, your, I, I keep using those, the hippie moment, whatever, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what was the next thing there for you? Okay. Let's um, see. I don't think I've ever done this on a podcast. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Okay. So then um, now we, I did Costa Rica. I ended up actually buying real estate in Costa Rica while I was there. I, I told you, I like love real estate. And so I bought a mountain in Costa Rica and then I bought a little spot on the beach and kind of got that thing going there. And then then I came back and I actually almost went into nonprofits because I have a a real like, I don't want to say generous side or very like heart-centered. And so I was like, how can I help the world with my accounting background? So then I almost totally did a flip and started to look into nonprofits. And then what I started to get to, it was actually just the same corporate job. It just was paying less. And it was in a different kind of environment with a few more struggles. And I was like, okay, I don't think this is really going to achieve what I want. And I was networking with everybody. Like, if you guys can ever remember the the book, I mean, you have kids. I don't know. Scott, you have kids? I don't remember. Nope, Not no yet. Kids. Right? No kids. Yeah. Um, but the book called Are You My Mother? That's kind of how I felt. Oh, like everybody, yeah. everybody that I would go and meet with, I'd be like, are you my mother? Like, could I do what you do? And I was just curious. I was just open to whatever it was going to be. Because at this point now, we're about nine months in and I let go of going back and getting a job right away because I was like, I don't need to do that. Like I've set myself up so that I, I can make it work with the rental income, with the other room I was renting, with the bit of unemployment that was left. And then actually I did get a job um, to supplement it because I didn't want to put myself into debt and feel like I was like squashing all the hard work that I had just been doing. So I actually got a job at the SEC as a forensic accountant, which sounds a lot more glamorous. Like it sounds like CSI, (laughs) CPA or something, but it wasn't all that exciting. It was like piles of papers of like work papers that I had to sort through and find the fraud, which was kind of cool, but not... You already had that experience. Not the fraud part, but the sorting through the papers. See, it came in handy (laughs) because I didn't have a panic attack when they put it in front of me. Because it's not yours. Because it was your problem. I wasn't, well, I wasn't responsible for it in the same kind of way. So, um, so I did get a job along the way to kind of give myself a little bit more time to figure it out. And I made sure that that job kind of let me do this networking, this informational interviewing that I was doing. And then I started to meet with some financial advisors and they were like, oh, maybe you can do what we do, right? You're a woman and you're very personable and you get math and numbers and like, you, you like meeting people. But then I was like, okay, let me think about this. So then I started to go and talk to my friends and my family and my network. And I was like, hey, what if I became a financial advisor? And it had about the same effect as an auditor. When I used to tell people (laughs) I was an auditor, it landed with that kind of a thud, right? Except that they would almost like grip their purses and be like, oh God. Do you you need life insurance? 
<laughs> did, you, did you open with you open with something like that? <laughs> I think that's what they thought was going to come out of my mouth next, right? <laughs> so they were like, um, "No, no, we're good, thank you." You know, and I was like, "Okay, hold on, I, I haven't taken this job yet. I just want to understand, like, what are your challenges with money?" And when I started to talk to them more. I found myself connecting more with the emotional challenges that they were having, right? With why weren't they able to save and what was going on? I think like in a former life, I must've been a therapist or something because I'm like such a good listener and it's like, I'm like a confessional for people. And so then that's what I found much more interesting. So not like a doctor, like an advisor that like gives a prescription and asset allocation and sends you on your way. I wanted to be more of like the financial nurse or even the financial therapist that would help you figure out like what's really going on with you and money and why is it that you're really struggling as much as you are with saving given the income that you're making. So I turned down the financial advising jobs and then shortly thereafter... I was sitting in a workshop, like one of these like three days, like get your millionaire mind on kind of thing. You know, everyone's like standing up and hooting and hollering. And I'm like, this is interesting. And it's so odd because at one point I looked back at my notes from my attending this first event and I wrote down the strangest things. Like I wrote down how they did exercises, the times they took breaks. It was almost like a part of me thought that maybe I could lead a workshop not quite as hippie or hokey as that one maybe was, but that maybe there was going to be something to this. And I remember I had told my friend, you know, I didn't, I turned on the financial advising jobs, but it's almost like a financial coach that I could see myself being. And so then it's Sunday of this event and they're handing out these like half an hour um, sessions with a success coach. And it was in that moment, I was like, boom, that's it. I can be a financial coach. Like there's something to this. And so I started taking my business cards, which when you're in transition, your business card just has like your name and your email and your phone. And I started writing on it, personal financial trainer, you know, a a trainer for you and your money or a personal financial coach. And I was like, one hour free, call me. I was literally scribbling like mad while they're handing out these cards at this workshop. And I was like, this is what I can do. Like I can help people. Cause I was always like that big sister, like that friend that you come to when you're having trouble with money or you're trying to sort it out. So I was like, maybe I can even get paid for this. Like that would be amazing. And that was the moment when um, in May 2007, so it was like a year and uh, four months later after I'd gotten laid off, that I was like, this is what I think I'm going to do. Like, could it, could I make it work? And then I, and I'm a total student. So then I was invited to do a branding workshop and it was in that workshop. It was like 12 of us and we had to come up with our mission. Like if we were to do our own company, what would it be? I remember standing up and I, I declared this at the time and I had no idea what was going to come from this now or 13 years later. And it was to inspire ownership and action for financial success to open doors and create a truly rich life for you and for me and for the world. And that was where it all began. And then um, a few months later, Own Your Money was born. At 2 a.m. when I called GoDaddy and came up with the name. <laughs> <laughs> But that was really where I was like, I don't need corporate, like F that job. You know, I I really wanted to go and, you know, forge my own path. Keep in mind, this was 2007. And so my friends and family were very nervous and very skeptical about this working. But I can tell you that when everything started crashing in 2008, I became very popular. So I was then like on the five o'clock news for NBC locally because I at least could help people handle the financial stress and 
you know, make a plan for what they need to do with their money. That was going to be the thing that I said was, hey, I remember 2007. I remember 2008 that came right after 2007. How did this work out? I mean, I know, you know, spoiler, it worked out great. I know it worked out great. But so people then came to you wanting help with their finances. That's interesting because I would think that if if I'm having financial trouble, I wouldn't go and spend money trying to figure out my finances. How do you... I guess, how do you reconcile that? Oh, that was absolutely a challenge. <laughs> I mean, because you're talking right? about yeah. asking for money and this emotional, you know, thing. And, you know, the first thing you, when you said that, I thought, you know, there's a lot of women in particular, but entrepreneurs in general have a hard time asking for the money that they are due. You know, mm-hmm. I sent you an invoice and you didn't pay it. I can send you another invoice and you don't pay it again. How do I get the money that you owe me? So, yeah, so there's absolutely is the answer, right? But it's a great question. There's sort of two elements of that. So the first one is, you know, how do you work people through paying something or investing in a course or a membership or whatever, right? To fix a problem when they already feel broke. And I actually figured out that I didn't have to market to broke people because I started out doing that. I was like, oh, people don't have money. Like, let me go help them get money. But they didn't even feel like they had enough money to invest with me. So then I figured out, well, there are all these people that are actually making good money. So on the surface, they could be saving something, right? And But they're not. And so why is that? So then when I could start to have them see how much money they were really leaving on the table and the impact that that was having to them right now and for the next 10, 20, 30 years, if they didn't do something about it right now, then they started to open their ears and listen more. The second piece though that you touched on, and that first piece applies whether you're a job, you know, in a corporate job, a professional, stay at home and handling the finances, like that's still a hurdle that I have to kind of talk people through is to really see the ROI on making an investment like this. But what would happen is that I started immediately just coaching anybody and everybody that wanted my advice (laughs) so that I could get some good stories and be like, oh, look, I helped this person save an extra $800 a month. I helped this person save an extra $500 a month. Help this person save $1,000 a month. Because that's the amazingness, right? If you can figure out what's leaking in somebody's budget, right? In where they're spending, you know, sometimes you guys talk about like unconscious spending, right? There's a lot of unconscious spending. So I had created a worksheet that essentially would highlight the unconscious spending for people. And they're like, oh... (laughs) Like that's what's going on. And so then once they could start to see, oh, well, maybe you can help me find $500 to $1,000 because that's pretty much what we would end up doing on a regular basis. And I think I actually still have that worksheet. I'll, I'll get you guys the link for that um, to include. That um, um, Then they were like, oh, I can see how it pays for itself. Now, the other piece though that you touched on is, is a whole nother ball of wax or whatever, right around, you know, why do we as entrepreneurs have such a challenge in asking for money, particularly money that's due to us, right? Because mm-hmm. in the example that you just gave Mindy, like, like the one, you know, you as the entrepreneur, you did the work and you provided an invoice and they're the ones that are choosing not to pay. And so a lot of really learning how to own your money and to become unapologetic around money in your business is taking the emotion out of it. So it's coming to terms with the emotion, right? Recognizing that mindset piece for yourself, but then recognizing that that doesn't have to rule the show. 
And I think that when it does, you take things so personally and you don't make that follow-up call. You start to self-sabotage yourself. You don't call for the invoice that's due. And instead, I just really say like, hey, you did the work, right? So you just call up very matter-of-factly. You know, or better strategy, take money up front. Like have their credit card, set up a payment structure and be like, okay, I'll run X dollars at the beginning. I'll run Y dollars when I deliver it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just have to like, like get to that point where you don't have to tie somebody else's delay on your own value because they're very distinct. You have no idea what's going on for that other person in their personal life, in their business that's having them ignore your invoice. It could just be that they're away. They're not paying attention. Maybe they're avoiding money like I used to do when I was 28. <laughs> like I have a lot of compassion right now. Like I'm such a non-judgmental person about people's money stuff because I have had some pretty tough stories, you know, some some tough shame and guilt that I've lived with. And to get to that point where it's like you you consciously choose the people that you work with and that you set up payment structures that will work for you. Right. And that you don't have to feel bad for the work that you did, but that you actually set up a good structure to make sure that you're getting paid for the value of your services. I don't say paid what you're worth because I feel like, you know, you're worth so much more than the $200, $500, $1,000 someone's paying you or more, $10,000 even they're paying you, but that it's you're charging for the value of the services that you're delivering. Period. So you don't get to take that personally. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street 
and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com slash BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash BP. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP Money. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. When you started this business in 2007, 2008, you know, were you still living in the, the house hack, the, the apartment where you rented out the rooms? Okay, so you were keeping your expenses very low. You had this, this sizable position. What was it like? How would you describe the process of your business gaining traction over that year? However, how many years or how many months did it take? Would you, would you, articulate, would you say to get that going? Sure. So I started in December. I kind of incorporated in like August. I had a lot of trouble finding a name because when you find a name, you compete with everybody around the world. So I was like, oh, this company in Australia has a name I really wanted. Like I had pages and pages of notes. One day I just um, incorporated with my name, which at the time, I'll spell this out for you so you get it right here, it was Belinda Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. I do not suggest ever starting a company with that name because it's very challenging for lots of oh, obvious man. reasons, right? Oh man, is right, right? <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to let anything get in my way. So I started it in... And, and, and voicing was an issue. Yeah, sorry. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, right. God, I've been teased since fourth grade. So I'm, yeah. I'm, it, it, it bounces off now. Unfortunately, I got married. So now it's Belinda Rosenblum, right? But, um, uh, but then like a month later, I came up with this idea of own your money. Literally at two in the morning, I called GoDaddy and I was like, I want this domain. And I back ordered it. And then it took like three or four days and I checked and I was like, gosh, I really want, I really want it. Oh no, it was sold like crap. And so then I go and I check and then it was sold to me. 
So he had never notified me, but I did actually get the domain that I really wanted. And so then in December, I launched my first workshop and I had all of these grand intentions. So if you have some newer entrepreneurs that are like, oh, I'm just going to be a success right from the beginning. Like, it's not going to take me three years to make money. I'm going to do a two-day workshop. Well, I decided to do a two-day workshop right out of the gate. Um, and this was like before coaching and you know now like business coaching is all the rage. It wasn't really happening back in 2007. And I remember renting a space at the John Hancock Center in Boston for like 120 people. I had like big plans for my first workshop. Well, about every three weeks, I would have to go back to this place and shrink the size of the room that I would get. Because it would be like three weeks closer to the date and I would have two people registered, four people registered, right? So it took a little while to get off the ground. That first two-day workshop had 12 people in it. (laughs) Yay! But there were 12 people who learned a lot, I can tell you. But the other thing is that I was willing to make offers to them. You know, and sometimes it's like, it's not the size of your audience per se, it's really the value that you're delivering. So I like poured so much into them. They learned a lot there. And then I was like, okay, so I, I made an offer of private coaching with me. And then I made an offer of like a lower cost ongoing membership with me. So those, I'd say nine of the 12 people, the other three were like my best friend and her husband. <laughs> you know? Almost everybody bought something. I, I don't think they felt bad. I think they were actually really excited to get their money together. And um, so that's really what started to fuel things. But it was a little rough going in 2008. Like I think we made like 60 grand. And then, um, so we did start to make money amidst the you know economy crashing. And then 2009, um, we were now making 155 grand. But this is a really important point for entrepreneurs, especially starting up. I focused on revenue. Everyone was like, just go make money. Like just go make sales. And so I had hired a bunch of team and I had like a VA. And now like you can have a website for so much cheaper and you can make updates to the website yourself. Back then, again, dating myself a little bit, but back in 2007, I don't even think there was a WordPress. It was like in PHP and I had to have somebody go in and make updates. And I was doing a lot of my own workshops and a lot of speaking and a lot of things that I wanted my website updated. I was doing a lot of press. So like every week I would have another, like in Yahoo Finance this week and Saturday Evening Post. So I was like, oh, all that stuff has to be on my website just to help me with credibility. But it cost me a ton of money. So I grossed $155,000 in my second full year of business. I profited, any guesses? $10. $7. Oh. $3,000. Whoa. (laughs) That's a ton of a ton of work to do coming from a six-figure job to net three, right? And I wasn't mixing personal finance. Like, you know, I absolutely figured out like in year one, separate business and personal finance. I had a business bank account. That was all business expenses. And yeah, I mean, maybe I put through, you know, my phone bill, (laughs) like pretty much that was all business. So I was like, something has to change. Like I can't just follow these business gurus that are like, just focus on making more money, right? And then I was like, okay, wait a second, time out here. I know what it's like to manage my personal finances from the you know, conversation around hacking and taking care of that. I need to put that kind of attention to my business finances now too and my business expenses. So then I was like, okay, time out. What can I change here? How do I change my business model? So I significantly reduced my assistant because my sister was making a lot more than I was. And I wasn't going to have that for a second year in a row. So I significantly reduced my expenses. I batched a lot more things. I streamlined a lot more things. And I hired another coach to work under me in my business. So that then all of a sudden I can make money on her time, not just expecting myself to make money on my own time 
you know, with clients. And so that was great. So then the next year we grossed $255,000 and we profited 96, right? So almost $100,000 more of profit with that $100,000 more of income. Because I totally reshaped the business model to make it work much more successfully. Does that help for your the, for no, the first three that, years of business? To get it going? That's awesome. Yeah. So so you it sounds like you be, you went from controller to a certain extent and, and salesperson to CFO that year. You know, and and reinventing the business model and, and building those things out. So that's that's fascinating around that and the the revenue versus expenses and income and, and those types of things in the early years. So what happens in the years following that? Going from three to ninety six, do you do you continue to grow from there on out generally? Generally, yes. Um, what you know, part of it too is really making sure that the business you're creating is aligning with the life that you want. Because I think that you know, especially in the first few years when I was single, I was willing to do all the things. Like I would be on the news at five forty in the morning because they asked. You know, so it's like okay, you know, literally I, the day before, and they don't necessarily give you a lot of warning. <laughs> like the day I was on the five o'clock news, they called me at two o'clock that afternoon. You know, and they're like, we'll be over. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I was doing all the things. And then I think there came a point where I was like, okay, wait a second. We're doing well enough in the business. I really want to make sure that I'm having the life that I want. Right. Because then it wasn't just about the business. And then I, I got married in March of 2011, which was a big deal. And then <laughs> I was like on my bucket list, so to speak, that I really wanted to make happen. <laughs> and then I really want a family. And so now, fast forward, now I'm 39. And my biological clock was ticking. God, you can't necessarily appreciate this part, but you have to go with me here. And <laughs> Mindy's laughing at least. And I appreciate I like, that part. You're going to appreciate that part. And I was like, okay, so now the business is, is kind of rolling, right? But I think I had this fear of, you know, my business was so centric on me. I was doing a lot of speaking. I was traveling the country doing speaking. I actually had a TV show in the Boston area, I had a radio show. And it was intense. I think there's a part of me that was like, okay, wait a second, can I really keep this up and have the family that I want? And kind of like I had that moment back when I had left my job that I was like, well, what am I accumulating all this money for if not to live the life I want? That was kind of the, the moment I had now to say, okay, wait, time out. If I have to, I have to rework this job because we're actually having trouble getting pregnant. And I was like, okay, I think that I'm just too stressed out. Like I think that I, I can't envision how I could do the business the way the business was going and be able to maintain a family and a baby and all the things. And big picture, the family was more important to me. Like no matter how much I cared about the work I was doing and the business I had created, and now we were in multi six figures. And so then I took a step back in 2012, hired a business coach finally. And I was like, okay, I need a business that will sustain me through a family and allow me to work less. And so I started creating products and programs in 2012, right? So that it wasn't so much like time for dollars, like as a coaching programs and speaking and stuff. So I created, a, I kind of laid out, these are the three programs that I want to have that I want to sell. And so in February, I launched a five-week program. Then I delivered it in March. Then I launched another one in April. Then I published the book in June. Then I 
had my gallbladder out in August, but you don't really care about that. Then in September, (laughs) (laughs) you do have health and life happening in between. Then in September, I created another, the third of those five-week programs that I wanted. Now, keep in mind, I didn't have a lot of people in these programs, but that didn't matter. What I was committed to was creating a product that I could sell and start to leverage my time more. So So that's why I did all this. You do the thing once and you record it or you write it down or whatever, and then you sell that thing multiple times. Totally. And I, okay. full disclosure here, I believed way back before it was popular like it is now and the monetize before you make it. Like I had a page where you could buy. I had an outline on the page. That was all I had when these people signed up. So for everyone that's like, oh, I don't know what I would, you know, I don't have all the course mapped out and I don't have everything pre-recorded. Don't worry about it. Like what's most important is that you have a transformation that you want to create for people. And that's what I had. I had a decision. I was like, okay, so I did one on making money easy, making money flow. And it wasn't making money grow, but I almost called it that. (laughs) (laughs) See, now this gives me anxiety to have the, the deadline where everybody is waiting for your thing. And then now you have to go and get it. I would want to do it before then. But so how long uh, well, did it take you? You could, but the other one was making money joyful actually, because I decided that people needed to find more fun in their money, right? They needed to let go of that avoidance. And so that's what I created. Yeah. Here's why that approach is so smart, by the way, for people listening, right? So you put up a page and you don't even have the product or the five-week course built at all, right? Correct. So one, one of two things is probably going to happen, right? One is nobody's going to buy it at all. Right? And then I don't need to create which, it. Which means you don't have to actually spend the time building the product. The right. second is that a lot of people are going to buy it. And you'd be like, oh, crap. I have like lots of people buying this. Now you know that like, yes, now I'm going to work 100 hours a week for the next five weeks to actually deliver this product bit by bit to them all and make it really good and, and actually deliver on the value prop I promised, right? And work work with that. And look, if you don't, you refund some of the users, but you know that the next time you market your product, you're going to have a lot of interest because it, the value prop works, right? So it's just like a much lower risk way of scaling or launching a business than in making that investment upfront and then seeing if it will work at the end. It's just a, right. a, a, it's just a dramatically better risk profile. So that's something that we, we like to encourage here. We like to say, hey, we'll, we'll take some users and ask, would you like this product? Great. Then we build the product. <laughs> right. And, and you, you know, can even and, and say- And it's everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You can even softball it out there. Like, hey, I'm thinking about creating this. Like, is this something you'd be interested in? Right. And so I kind of, I did a big survey to figure out what did people really want and what did they think their challenge was? And what came up across the board was that they felt like they needed some help making more money. And they all had a different theme. And I only had 20 people in each one. Like, it's not like they had hundreds of people, but it honestly, it didn't matter. And this was back in the day where it was, there was no Zoom there's no video even. We just did it on teleseminars, if you can remember that, right? So it was just beyond like a phone line. It was just audio. And at the time, I thought that I was going to re-record everything. So I was like, okay, this is just for me to outline. I work well under deadline. <laughs> Many people probably do, right? <laughs> like you, you get the stuff done when you know you're going to be showing up for a class for 20 people. So I had the outline and I would just flesh it out every week and I would teach it. Um, live on this audio. And then I thought that once I was done, I was going to make it more formal, right? I was going to make it prettier and maybe record videos and whatever. But the reality was that I had 20 people first one, 20 people second one, and then I had 65 by the third one. Because now I figured out the marketing element, figured out what did people really want, and I figured out affiliate marketing. 
So I figured out like, how do I have other people start to promote what I'm doing? Okay. So then that last one launched in September. I had a lot of momentum from that 100 people. And then I launched a six-month group program on the back end in November. So I would start to create some recurring income for myself. I'm a big fan of how do you create consistent income in your business. And then in December, no joke here, at Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny, I find out that I'm pregnant. I take a pregnancy (laughs) test. And lo and behold, my destiny is I'm going to be a mom. And um, that was December of that year of 2012. So 2013, I had my first baby. So then I was like, oh, I don't have time to go pretty these programs up. I'm just going to package them up and sell them. (laughs) That's what I started doing. So then 13, I had a baby. 14, I got pregnant again. 15, I had a baby. And for that three years, my primary income was doing affiliate collaborations, selling these programs. Because the big thing for me was just having a product that I know worked, right? That created good stories. So I had people who went through them. That's the other reason why I love doing this like beta or pilot or monetize before you make it is that you get real people that have done the program that can give you stories of their results. So then you can feel more confident about it. And then more people buying can feel more confident about it too. And if you don't get enough stories, you do it again. And I'll often encourage my students to do to sell it at half price the first time with the understanding that they're going to be giving you feedback along the way, that they're really going to do their best to show up live so that it's the best experience and to take action. And then, I mean, that really makes a difference. And then I did personal finance for basically the first 12 years of my business. Was, was selling these programs, was done having kids by 15, 2015. Then I launched a membership in 2016 and then really worked that membership for a while. I was like, people want to make money. Great. I can help you there. But then 2019, and I don't know if anyone has ever had this challenge, I got a little bored with telling people the same thing I'd been telling them for 12 years. No, and uh, you know, there there comes a point where it's like, okay, make more money, and they're like, well, I'm in a job. Like, what do you want me to do? Okay, I guess you can get a promotion, you can get a raise, you can leave your job. Like, I was running out of options. But with my entrepreneur clients, boom, there was so much that I could do. Like, I think that for entrepreneurs, you you know, for for even if you're doing a side hustle, like you have an unlimited amount of money that you can make you get to decide how much money you make. Yes, you have to ask for it. (laughs) As we talked about, it doesn't magically get deposited in your account anymore, but um, you just have a lot more possibilities. So in January, 2019, I was sitting in a more of a business coaching workshop and people were talking all about their challenges with their business money and making consistent money. And that was the moment that I had the epiphany there that I was like, like it was physically paining me to sit in that room and hear their struggles and their fears and how they were holding themselves back. So then January 2019, I decided to keep the personal finance arm, but really pivot and grow the business finance arm. And so that's really more of what um, of what we've now taken to over the last few years. That was awesome. few years. I guess year and a half. <laughs> Feels like years. So now it's about growing a strategic, profitable business so people can work less, profit more, and really take home real money consistently. Because I think that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are in a lot of feast and famine and they never learn how to make consistent money and how to pay themselves consistently. So that's what we do now. 
there's something powerful to me about the concept of, hey, I have a good job. I get control of my money. I spend relatively frugally. I increase my savings rate. I build a stable financial position over time to that million error range, that lean fi, you know, the cool kids call it now. And then you've, you've got entrepreneurship as that next step there to go after. And that's, you know, you, like the answer is how do I increase my income at a job? Well, you know, once you get to certain points, that's, that's kind of it, right? You know, your stepping stones and how that's going to look. Um, mm-hmm. and so it inevitably has to be entrepreneurship if you really want to scale that income. Um, so my, my question, and it, it kind of parallels an earlier question I asked for you is, you know, I think with entrepreneurship, there are diff- different people are comfortable taking that leap in different positions. You, you were comfortable with that after being a millionaire plus sub, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are comfortable with doing that with basically nothing. We're going at it, you know, even with bad debt or, or, or different situations. How do your clients think about taking the leap away from a job and into entrepreneurship? And how does their personal financial position impact their comfort level with making that leap? So before I have people make that leap, I want them. This is why we haven't ditched the personal finance arm because we all have bank accounts, right? We all still need to be responsible and own our money around our personal finances too. And so it's like the first step is actually looking at personal finances to figure out, okay, what do you need to be earning every month, right? And how do you either start to sock away a cushion or how do you maybe start to uh, tailor down the income from your job while you're ramping up your business? You know, I'm not necessarily the like burn all the ships, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever the, the phrase is, I'm forgetting it right now. But you know, it's like that when you're heading out, it doesn't mean that you have to abandon everything that's worked before, right? It's like, hey, if you're in a job, start to figure out what could I do? You know, put it out there. Hey, if I were to do this, would you buy it? Right. And to start to think of it as a side hustle. And then you start to think about, okay, how could I make this side hustle more permanent for myself? And really think about what would I need to earn? So I help people to reverse engineer the revenue that they need to be making in their business based on what they want to be able to take home personally. right? Profit and revenue, they don't have to be happy accidents. <laughs> you can actually be more strategic about the money that you want to be making so that you can pay yourself on a regular basis. So I think that part of that is understanding your own personal finances, understanding the elements that you could do without if you wanted to for some short period of time while you're growing your business. Mm-hmm. Right? So that then you can say, okay, well right now I live on, you know, $3500 a month, but if I decide to do this this business, I think I could do with 3000, I'll just not eat out as much or you know, I won't buy coffee. I'll just be home. So I'll make coffee for myself. And you just start to look at it. And you say, what, what do I want to take home? And then you literally just divide that by 1 minus 0.7, right? If you have like a 30% tax rate or 0.25, depending on how much you're making, just for round numbers. So let's say you want to take home $3,000. You divide it by 0.75 and you're like, okay, I need my business to net, net, so profit, $4,000 minimum. Then you keep going and you say, okay, well, I'm going to have some business expenses. Got to add those on. I probably need a coach because Lord knows it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> you know, there's just like stuff you have to learn. And there's no shame in learning. I think sometimes we think, oh gosh, I have to like, do I have to buy a course? Can I do it myself? You could do it yourself. I am a fan of shortening your learning curve and just getting help to do it. 
with the personal finance side, with the business side. Um, absolutely. We made money a lot faster because I figured out, okay, if I hire a coach, I'll get there a lot faster. I'll charge more. I'll, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's about having um, people who believe in you before you can believe in you. Right. And to kind of reflect back, hey, wait a second, you're really good at this. <laughs> Go charge more for this. And by week two, almost everybody raises their rates because <laughs> it's called own your value. Right. And it's like, wait a second, why, why are you charging what you're charging? Like, look at the transformation you're creating. So then once you figure out, okay, I, ha- I want to have maybe $2,000 for my business expenses, then it's like, okay, so how do I make $6,000? Like, if that's going to be my minimum goal, and you just start to, Reverse engineer, how can I make that? Could I do one thing at $6,000? Could I do two things at $3,000 every month? Could I do six things at $1,000? You know, and just to, to take away the mystery of it and just say it's math. Like, how do I, what do I want to sell? Right? What, what could I sell? You know, if someone's paying me $3,000, what are all the things that I could do for them? You know, could I talk to them every week? Could I, you know, you, I think of it in different levels. There's like, DIY where the person is doing it. You're just teaching them how to do it. There's do it with them and then there's do it for them, right? So there's so many different opportunities of how people can make money. I actually have a, a freebie we just created called Five Simple Ways to Create Consistent Income um, because I think that that element is a mistake that a lot of people make. They start the business because they're passionate about it and they don't actually think through, how could I make money? I'm not talking about a 42-page business plan. I'm talking about a very straightforward, how am I going to make money in this business? question. It sounds like there's business, that business finance is a lot like personal finance. And I love that you recommend starting while you still have a job. I think that a lot of people are like, I hate my job so much. I'm going to quit and start my own company. And yes, you might hate your job. We've all been in there and, you know, I hate my job so much. I want to quit instantly. But when you take that away, there's your safety net that's, that's helping you stay afloat while you start your business. Because I know that I have been corrected several times. 95% of all small businesses fail in the first two years. It's a lot though. Several people have corrected me. That's not the actual quote, but there's a lot of small businesses that fail in the first year. Some of it is honestly just a really stupid idea that nobody is ever going to buy. And I hate (laughs) to say that, that, but you know, that's not wrong. Um, But Mm -hmm. others are just, you started wrong. You didn't start it correctly. So make mistakes while you still have money coming in as opposed to, all your eggs are in one basket and then you drop the basket. Right. I I totally agree with that. And the other thing that people don't realize is that you bring a lot of desperation to the offers that you're making when you absolutely need those dollars, like to eat, right? So, you know, I mentioned along the way that like I got that job at the SEC. I probably could have started to pull down my savings, but I wanted to actually fund the thing I was going to go and do right? And, and fund my personal expenses. So I didn't have to put so much pressure on the business to make money right away. And I think that that's really important. And yeah, a few stats that I think are interesting to your point. So 60% of businesses are break-even or lose money. Only 40% are actually profitable. So all of those are like unintentional nonprofits. <laughs> you know, And it's like, it's up to you to figure out how can I actually make money? Because if you look at why businesses fail... of businesses fail because of cash flow problems, right? It's because they don't are not understanding the money side of their business. So they're not really understanding how can I make this business sustainable? So I totally agree that it makes sense to really take a step back and look at how can I make the money in this business and how can I maybe transition so that I'm still making some job money, 
but I'm starting to ramp up. And I've actually heard a stat even like if you can make 30% of what you need when you're only working part-time, if you go and you work full-time, you should be able to ramp up. But I absolutely think that you should have a cushion going into doing that. You know, of three to six months of your expenses. I know we talk about that. Most people don't do it. But if you're going to go start your own business, I absolutely would like to see you have some sort of cushion there. Yes, so. I could not agree more. Amen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This has been super, super helpful. I, if you're thinking about starting a business, this is going to really help people get on the on the path to that entrepreneurship. I think that you've given our listeners a lot of things to talk about. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we move on to our financial scan? Thank you all for having me on, first off. But um, you know, I, I feel like there's this element of, you, I don't want people to wait, right? Like I don't want you to wait to start the business. And like, oh, when I have more saved, when I you know, when I this, when I that, like there's no good time necessarily. You know, if you have an idea and you're passionate about it, start to put it out there, right? And start to see like, what could I do to make this work in a way that, that people could start to pay me in a way that I could start to make money from it. And when I talk about those five ways, it's things like, you know, how can you restructure how you're making money? How can you remarket to your network? How do you repackage? How do you resell? How do you repurpose? And really look at your expertise as valuable and as something that people would pay for. And I think that sometimes because we're, we enjoy it or because we're good at it, we discount the value that it's providing. And I don't want our listeners today to be doing that. I want you to really get that, hey, if people can get a transformation from what you know, don't be selfish and do them a disservice by holding it back. Instead, we really want to see, I really want to see you put it out there. That's brilliant. Because yeah, I'm thinking to my own self, oh, I already know this. Why would I charge somebody to learn this too? Well, because they don't know it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's wonderful. And you can teach it to them a lot faster than they can. Like people don't have to work with us. They can try and figure it out on their own, but it may take them three to five to seven years to do it. Or it can take six weeks. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of a thing. And so I think that it's like, don't, don't trip over pennies on your way to dollars. Like if you don't know something, have a growth mindset, be curious about it and go learn it. Instead of feeling bad or ashamed that you don't know it, just say, I don't know it yet. And go find somebody else who's already done it that can teach it to you. Yeah, you don't need to graduate from the school of hard knocks. No, <laughs> many people do. I think, you know, this is a whole different podcast probably, but you know, so many people have the belief of it has to be hard, right? Making money is hard and it's a tricky one. I grew up with that too. I watched my dad have four jobs and it's not something though that, that you have to carry through. You can actually find a way to make it easier to make money for yourself. That's fantastic. Okay. Uh, Well, then let's move on to our financial scan. We have added a new segment to the show recently called the financial scan. We want to know what you are investing in. Where are you planting your money so that it grows for retirement? There's no one right answer, but we all know that it will take forever to become a millionaire based solely on your W-2 job. So to improve our chances of success, we invest in stocks and bonds and real estate and other opportunities. Where are you planting your money, Belinda? So, so this is interesting. I, I, I looked at my net worth statement and I did percentages. I don't really do percentages all that much. And um, 
And I mean, I do with my advisor, but it was interesting to do this analysis. And when I looked at... So there's two ways I looked at it and just have people kind of take a step back at their own stuff. I looked at it from the net worth statement, right? So you look at like total assets, less liabilities. Um, and when I looked at the total assets piece, we have a significant portion of real estate. Not so shocking, right? Because we have the two-family house, we have our primary residence, we have the mountain and the beach in Costa Rica, you know. And so it was like seventy-two percent of our assets are in real estate, you know, in terms of like asset value, which is significant. And the thing though is that with the remaining cash that we have, it's then I am more aggressive with that cash in terms of putting it into stocks because I view real estate as you know more stable. You can imagine that, right? So if I were to do a normal allocation in terms of stocks, bonds, that kind of thing, then I'm not giving credence to the fact that we do have so much of our overall portfolio in real estate, right? So when you say, when you say your assets are in real estate, what do you, we, you know, does that, are those reasonably highly leveraged? So your equity is, would be, your, your equity within that real estate would be a, a smaller concentration of your overall net worth? Um, not not as much as you might think, I guess, because I purchased the property in 2000, right? Yeah. So we'll okay. have it paid off in like six years or something, you know, um, for so the- that is a really heavy concentration in real estate. It is a heavy concentration for sure. Um, we got a website the, for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, it doesn't mean I want it, but like, what do you do if you have one property that's worth over a million dollars, Scott? You don't have to sell the property. I'm not going to sell a, a, you know, a room in the property. <laughs> I'm going to keep the property <laughs> and I'm going to keep making rental income off the property, right? So what do you do though, is that you just look at the rest of what you have to work with, right? And so then when I looked at the rest in terms of our stocks, you know, we have like 25% in stocks a month, but like 85% of that is in stocks. And we didn't um, change it. Like we kept that pretty aggressive and we're just kind of riding out what's happening now. It's ironic because I talked to my advisor and um, uh, you know, I do a lot around the emotions around money and the tactical finance. I don't do investing. Like I, I turned down those financial advising jobs because I didn't really want to do that. And so but we worked together and I kind of had a feeling that this recession was coming. Like I actually created an event called Recession Proof Your Business. Um, that released two weeks before the start of the recession. <laughs> I guess it was kind of crazy. But I, I generally believe, you know, you ride it, you don't try and time it. And I, you know, I heard that, you know, with Farnoosh just recently too, you know, that she made some changes. I can sleep at night because we've created enough other assets that if things waver a little bit, I'm just going to ride it through. Um, I also don't look at it as, you know, if I'm, I don't see myself retiring at 65 and pulling out all of that money. You know, like we'll have rental income, we'll have other things that will help to fund our life um, without needing to tap that right away anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to also point out that for you as an entrepreneur, you, you, you know, you have an, a large unvalued asset in your business, which mm -hmm. is comprised of various streams of income that are fairly diversified, I imagine, including mm -hmm. books and those types of things, right? So mm -hmm. those are all uh, items that allow your asset allocation to be relatively aggressive, you know, with that high concentration in stocks and real estate, I would imagine. Is that fair? Right. And so, so yeah, I think part of it is that I have like total faith in my ability to make money, right? So that, you know, and I just did a total pivot. Like we, we stopped promoting what we had been promoting and then I started promoting a whole new set of stuff. But then we just had to go make $100,000 promoting the new set of stuff. 
Yeah. And one more question here with, um, you know, and, and I'll speculate for a second. A lot of folks, we've, we've interviewed a number of folks that have positions in, in the ballpark of what you're talking about, where you've got, hey, some, some real estate, a business, the, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Generally, I found that folks in, the, in positions like yours tend to keep a large amount of cash on hand relative to their annual spending. What would you kind of, how, how much cash relative to your annual spending would you say you have on hand? Years, months? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Months. Um, It's funny because, you know, as you grow your business, you know, you start out and you're like, gosh, if I have $500 sitting in my business bank account, I'm going to be so happy. Right. And then it's a thousand dollars and then it's $5,000. And then like I hire a team and then all of a sudden, you know, like I need $10,000 just to pay our business expenses every month, you know? And so I have an amount that I'll leave in my business account. And then we have how much we leave, you know, we sort of set aside in our personal account so that if something were to happen and I stopped working the business, we could still pay all of our personal expenses. And then we also just keep home equity lines around. We're not borrowing against them, but I always feel like instead of tapping my credit cards, if something were to happen, I could always tap that because we are so house rich. You know, we're not cash poor, but we're certainly house rich. So I feel like if I ever needed to, I also kind of have that. I do have room on the cards too, but I mean, I could always tap that if I needed to. So I think that I, I think we do keep a little bit more cash on hand. Like I didn't go run to do all those loans because I was like, we're going to be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I think the part of it is, is paying attention. You know, it's really like recognizing that you won't be successful until you know your numbers. Because think like, are there any really super successful people in business or in personal finance who don't know their numbers? It's hard to find, right? And the vast majority do. And you do not have to make spreadsheets your love language like they are for me. But there are ways to own your money and to... Or and (laughs) there are ways to own your money and to um, be able to pay attention to it that can work for you. Even for the avoiders like me. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for that. Should we move on to the famous four? I know we're we're coming up on time here. Go for it. Okay. The first question in the famous four is what is your favorite finance book? It's The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. My friend uh Stephanie just gave me that book. Like oh my last God. weekend. It was one of the she first just gave me that I read book when I was getting into this. And it was one of those like ah, moments when I actually interviewed her for my TV show. Cause it was like, it all came full circle. I was like, Oh wow. You know, like this was one of the books that made such a difference for me. Um, to really start to see like the lies that we tell ourselves around money and the abundance that's really there for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two people what? now I have to so read go read book. it and DM me. Tell me what you think. I will. What was your biggest money mistake? It was the avoiding it yep. <laughs> and letting it all pile up. I mean, I, I, I bared it all on this podcast, but you know, there was a while where I had so much shame in teaching personal finance and having that in my background. And then there came a time when I was like, wait a second, that actually has helped contribute to the level of compassion that I have for people because I know that it can pile up, right? I know that like people can really view that as such a, a, a badge of shame, but I instead took it as a badge of honor basically to say, hey, if I could get through that, I can pretty much get through anything that's going to come my way. Exactly. But if I could do it again, I probably wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Open your mail. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> besides, yeah. besides open your mail, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? So it's, it's just start to save. It's that, you know, there's never a good time idea, 
right? That I mentioned earlier. It's like, do the max you can, even if it feels like a little bit of a squeeze and be sure to track because this is another mistake that I think people make is that they save or they max out their 401k, but then they're hitting a credit card to live, you know, and they're not really paying enough attention so that the whole picture works together because I don't want you to, to live off a credit card to be able to save. It's not worth that. Um, but just start to save. I think it's because I started to save early and often and then as I got raises, I just started to save more until I was maxed out that I think it has made such a difference. The, and the PS to that is as you start to save, certainly consider real estate, even if you have to start small. Um, yay! <laughs> um, you know, that um, it was because I bought a property back in 2000 when I did that at 28 that I think has made such a difference for me now, 20 years later. Awesome. All right. The most difficult question of the famous four, what is your favorite joke to tell at parties? <laughs> well, I, I asked my kids about this one because they really like telling jokes. Um, and I have a five-year-old. So the five-year-old Rebecca tells this joke. She goes, knock, knock. Who's there? Boo. Boo who? Oh, why are you crying? Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a next tier joke there. I love that. She's five. She's yeah. five, right? <laughs> And, yeah. then, and then the seven-year-old goes slightly more. He's like, why did someone throw the clock out the window? Why? I don't know why. He wanted to see time fly. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank well, you. Well, the, the runner-up was, <laughs> why did the boy stare at the uh, juice container? Oh. I why. Because oh, yeah, this would concentrate. Mean? Yeah. yeah. Ah. <laughs> So I have a 10-year-old. When, <laughs> when you ask little kids' jokes. But um, I don't go to parties all that much, so I rely on my hanging out with my little ones to tell jokes. But yes, there you go. Those are perfect. Right. That's what we're looking for. Wonderful, oh, yeah. Belinda, where can people find out more about you? So um, I am at Own Your Money Everywhere. I'm playing more on Instagram. I'm enjoying that, at Own Your Money. We're at Facebook. And um, we have this great new download that people can get, the five simple ways to create consistent revenue. That's ownyourmoney.com forward slash revenue. And I will find that tracking sheet too. I think it's ownyourmoney.com forward slash track to highlight their unconscious spending. Because I feel like we did talk some about personal finances and I want to give people a chance to be able to um, take control of their own personal finances as well. So I will find you that too. So please DM me and tag me and do all the things so that I know that you heard this podcast. Awesome. Yeah, we will include links to all of those in our show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow140. Belinda, this was super awesome and I learned a lot. I'm so glad you had time for us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you you very much. Okay, and we will talk to you soon. Scott, I love Belinda's story. What did you think? I thought it was great. I think it's like this classic, not classic, but I think it's just like this great example of, you know, I think back to the game Cash Flow by Robert Kiyosaki. It's a, it, it's an expensive game, you know, it's like 60 bucks or whatever, but it's a good lesson and it teaches you some things. And it's, it's this concept if you get out of the rat race and then you get into the, the, the fast track, right? Once you get out of the rat race and after you get to the fast track, you, you like visit Africa, you have lunch with the mayor, you buy the, the apartment complex, those types of things. And like, I think Belinda's personal finance story kind of like shows some of that literal, I mean, Mindy's look would be this weird look right now, but keep bear with me for another second here. I think it like, it shows like, Hey, there's like a literal reality that that reflects in a certain sense where she 
you know, was good and savvy with money in her 20s and early 30s and reached that millionaire status at 33, 35, right? Became an entrepreneur and had all of these life experiences that became options for her that were very realistic because money was a secondary concern once she crossed that, that threshold of having not just enough, but much, but more than enough early in life. And so like, that's the, the, the thing that should motivate you if you're listening to this and you're in your twenties or thirties or, or whatever stage of life in the sense that you can go out and have a completely different like experience in the career field and with philanthropy, all of those options are on the table once you kind of cross that threshold. And I think it's just a really exciting example of one person's story about like looking through all of those options, doing several of them, trying them, and then settling on the one that she did with her career. So how'd I, how'd I do there, Mindy? I thought that was great. I thought that's yeah. a great uh, overview of what we talked about with Belinda today. It's just, she has a fascinating story. And the part that I really like best is the mistake. That great big, oh, I didn't want to deal with it, so I just didn't pay attention to it. It shows that even people who know what they're doing. She's a CPA. She is an accountant. She does this for a living, managing the the funds and paying the bills and all of that stuff. So just because you know what you're supposed to do doesn't mean you're actually going to do it until you get to the point where you're like, I got to do it. I have to do the things. And, you know, I just, it brings a more human side to the to the people who are sharing their stories. Hey, I know what I'm supposed to do and I still made a mistake. But I also fixed it and moved on. So it shows, you know, that everybody makes mistakes. You're not alone and that it doesn't have to define you and end your financial life right there. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I I, I love the different ways we kind of like the different takeaways we just had from the show. Like completely <laughs> different, right? Hey, you can make tons of mistakes and still succeed. And I'm like look at the horizon that she created for herself, you know, early in life and, and how she pursued it. And they're both right takeaways, I think. So Yes, we're just very different people, Scott. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> I have to say And her that jokes were fantastic. Her jokes were- or Her kids' jokes were just fantastic. Her kids' jokes were fantastic. Yeah. Hands down, uh, best clock joke I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, God. I see what you did there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I do have to say that while I was listening to her talk about how she didn't open the mail and didn't open the mail. I'm thinking to myself, I bet there's a lot of people who can identify with that. Not me. I am still like a little kid. When the mail comes, I know it's junk and I have to open it. I open it up. I'm like, yep, that's junk. But I can't just let it sit there. How can you let it sit there? I can let it sit there. What if it's a thing? Plus, (laughs) somebody sent me mail. I want to see what it is. It's always a thing and it's always a pain in the the rear. It's always junk. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's share a win from our Facebook group. Richard posted a little while ago, I want to report a win as one of the five late bloomers. I just broke $200,000 in net worth at age 45. And then he said, nowhere else can I humble brag about this. It took nine years to get from negative 17 to 100K and then just three years to add the second 100K. The momentum builds. There are 334 when I'd screenshot this, people saying, hooray for you, yay. And 47 comments. And Richard, I just want to say, congratulations. This is huge and good job. Yeah, it sounds like we might have to, there might be a story there for us to share at some point. Ooh. That sounds like there will be a story there. I'll reach out to Richard and see if he wants to come share his story. 
Okay. Yeah. And if you would like to join our Facebook group, you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money. And it's just a safe place for you to come and talk about money, money struggles, money wins, questions that you might have, struggles that you know, you're know you having in your daily life, maybe with kids, maybe with you know whatever facet of your life that you need help with. We would love to help you. It's just a bunch of finance nerds geeking out about money. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. Uh, oh, do you have any more accounting puns? No, I think we are all out of accounting puns, me and you. Figures, right? <laughs> From episode 140 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench. I am Mindy Jensen, and we are out of here. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.